the, um, the don't make me count to three method of child discipline doesn't work and we shouldn't use it. I'm going to give you to the count of three to get off that slide and come over here. When the parent says that, you're effectively um, thinking that every, every step, every, every number, one, two, it's a closer to obedience. And yet the child hears that counting as a chance to either negotiate or put off the inevitable. I have three more counts to keep playing. After a while, the kid will figure out that mom or dad will resort to using fractions. Two and three quarter. I just have to wait her out. Counting to three gives the kid power in the situation. That serves to weaken parental authority. And remember, your child actually needs you to be in charge. It teaches your kids to ignore you and that you're willing to negotiate. It intensifies the situation often, and if you've ever done that, you know how it intensifies the situation. Causes the parent who's being ignored or defied to potentially explode in anger. And so that one, two, three effectively becomes a, a line to go right up to, but not to cross. There's a warning sign there in those numbers for the kids. You can go this far and no further. Just like that, we have, we, have, we actually have, just like this, we, have, we actually have many warning signs in our lives that we also are kind of ignore or have become desensitized to. Check engine lights. Bridges freeze first signs. Blinking yellow lights. We ignore all of them because we don't, we don't really believe the consequences of the warnings, right? Well, same, the same can be true for the Israelites, and it won't take long. This very generation, as we are studying in Leviticus, this very generation that had left Egypt, been redeemed from Egypt, and escaped to Mount Sinai uh, while they were in their wilderness wanderings, this very generation, in Numbers 25, verse 3, we see this. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. They've been warned time and time and time again not to pursue idolatry, not to worship the gods of the people around them, and yet they do. Over and over they do. And, and, and it's not just this particular uh, crooked and perverse generation either. At the end of Joshua's life, so after the, the next generation has, has conquered the promised land, after they have received the promise that was made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, uh, the, the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey, after they have conquered the land, Joshua charges them like this. And, and listen to the doubt in Joshua's voice. In fact, turn over. I want you to see this. Joshua chapter 24. We're going to come back to Leviticus 26. But in Joshua chapter 24... Verse 14. 
Right at the end of his life, he is charging the people of Israel. He charges them with this. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord, Yahweh, to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, Yahweh, for He is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, then He will turn and have... uh, He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, (coughs) Excuse me. You are witnesses against yourselves that you have spoken. Excuse me, I got something caught in my throat. (coughs) You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against us lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Can you hear the doubt in his voice. Oh no, we will serve the Lord. The prophets of the Lord throughout the Old Testament warned the people over and over again that these same, they warned these same things over and over and over again. And I'm not saying that God is counting to three, right? Obey me here. One, two, as if his warnings were empty. But rather that the people, they didn't take his warnings seriously. They promised to heed them. We will, we will. And then they didn't. They quickly forgot. And yet God is long-suffering. Remember how he describes himself. These are God's very words. He says, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now turn back to Leviticus chapter 26. Um, We're going to be finishing this chapter this morning. We've done the first section up through verse 13. We're going to be finishing chapter uh, verse 14 through the end. But like chapter 25 a couple weeks ago, it's actually a pretty long chapter. And so we're going to read it as we go. But here's the gist of this chapter. It contains a series of blessings for the people of Israel if they obey God's commands. We looked at those last week. And also curses on them if they disobeyed. Essentially, Leviticus chapter 26 applies all of chapters 1 through 25 with covenant promises and threats. Now, it was common in um, ancient Middle Eastern covenant documents that the, uh, the amount of, of curses in the document would far outnumber the blessings. Uh, we even see this in Scripture. So in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, for example, which is a very similar passage to this, there are 13 verses of blessings and 53 verses of curses for disobedience. The, the Code of Hammurabi, which is the ancient Babylonian law code, it's often compared to the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. It's even more striking than that. The Code of Hammurabi contains 16 lines of blessing for following the law, and 280 lines of curses for breaking the law. Now, as we looked at the the blessings last week, one thing I want to just point out here as we look at this and that we can see here through the rest of this chapter is that it it acts kind of as as a mirror image of the blessings in verses 1 to 13. It makes the contrast between obedience and disobedience all the more clear. So God's people were were created, chosen, and called to obey the Lord, and as a result, they will enjoy the rich blessings that come from being in in covenant fellowship with Him. And furthermore, uh, we have been warned, they have been warned here, not to turn from Him, or they will experience His justice and discipline in their rebellion. Think of it like this. If the people were loyal and obedient to their king, to their redeeming king, then he will be abundantly kind and generous toward them. But if they treat his kindness with contempt, then he will become their enemy. Nahum, the minor prophet Nahum, you don't have to turn there, you're welcome. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 says this, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Or or in the New Testament, think of the warning of James chapter 4 verse 4. James says, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Those are are strong warnings. This is what we see 
here, especially beginning in verses 14 and 15. So Leviticus 26, just verses 14 and 15 says this. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my uh, commandments but break my covenant, then, stop there, if then, persistent disobedience will lead to increasingly severe punishment. Persistent disobedience for the people of Israel will lead to increasingly severe punishment for the people of Israel. Now, in any, in any human relationship, um, especially in covenant relationships, so, so uh, that could be fellow church members, um, it can be parent-child relationships, or especially a marriage relationship, both parties understand, at least eventually, that the other is not perfect, right? In a marriage relationship, a covenant marriage relationship, both, both the husband and the wife understand, at least eventually, that the other is not perfect. Yet it's one thing, for example, for a husband to be imperfect, it's quite another thing entirely for him to commit adultery or to abandon the marriage. You understand that when you make your marriage vows, that the person you are marrying will sin against you. We understand these things. They will offend you and cause hurt. Those things are to be quickly repented of and forgiven. But you also understand that there are certain lines that may not be crossed without, in some cases, uh, even the threat of divorce. There are lines that may not be crossed. So in his covenant relationship with Israel, even while he is perfect, the Lord knows that the people will not be perfect, that they will fail to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They will fail to love their neighbors as themselves. And so he mercifully provides for them a sacrificial system that brings them atonement. We saw this especially in the, in the sacrifices of chapters 4 and 5 and then the culmination in, the, in that high holy day of atonement in chapter 16. So this chapter here, these blessings for um, obedience and curses for disobedience, this chapter isn't about the sins for which they repent and seek forgiveness and restoration. He promises to do that for them in atonement. He promises to accept their repentance, to forgive them and restore them. But they must not abandon their covenant relationship with him. They must keep away from idols. They must keep his Sabbath and revere his sanctuary, the first few verses say. They must not break the covenant. In fact, that phrase, break the covenant, it's used in other places in Scripture to, to describe an, an utter rejection of God's covenant. So Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. If the Israelites choose to do that, or... When the Israelites choose to do that, we know, to break the covenant, they would be choosing 
to call down the covenant curses on themselves. This is an important point because uh, modern people, people around us, they see Yahweh, the God of Israel, particularly what they would call the God of the Old Testament, who is the same as the God, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, the same as the God of the New Testament. But they would see Yahweh as some kind of moral monster. But the opposite is true. He gives them abundant warnings. And he even wrote about the consequences for their disobedience in the law code, both here and then later in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And even we read in Joshua 24, he refers to that. The Lord is long-suffering. He's patient. And so he gives them here specifically five stages of punishment. And he begins with, stage one is this. It's panic, disease, and fever. Look at verses 16 and 17. Stage one. So if, verse 14, but if you will not listen to me, if you spurn my statutes, verse 15, verse 16, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And I, will show your, uh, and I will, shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues. If they spurn the Lord, if they refuse to be obedient to the Lord, He will visit them with panic disease and fever that will destroy their sight and and drain away their life. If the people reject the Lord, he will punish them with these debilitating sicknesses that would be drawn out over a long period of time and that would allow, because of their sickness and their blindness, it would allow their enemies to overrun them and pillage them. But even, even worse than that, it says here that he would set his face against them. Set his face against them. Does that sound vaguely familiar? That idea of the Lord setting his face against his enemies? It's the opposite of what he wanted to do for them. In fact, it's the opposite of the blessing that we often hear about. In fact, we we often close our services with this. Since Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. See, for the Lord to set His face against His people was to view them as opponents. And the results would be tragic. Israel's enemies would overrun them. They would defeat them and rule over them. And this is only the first stage. It's important to remember that with each stage of this, and there are five, the Lord is calling the people of Israel to repentance. The same is true for Christians, right? Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall, not, uh, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, we understand that, that discipline... Um, there might be this idea of discipline might be taken in a couple of different ways, right? There's the discipline of a coach or a music teacher, say, and, and they push us to discipline, discipline us in one way. And then there's the rod of discipline that pushes us in another way, right? They both have the same effect, though. Growth, improvement. The goal of this discipline is repentance and restoration. It's not, it's not punitive. It's rather, it's corrective. Stop doing that. Don't do that anymore. It's bad for you. Right? And do you understand that, that the Lord still, and I need to emphasize this, sometimes uses physical illness to draw His own people back to Himself in repentance? We, we don't like that. Um, but sometimes that can be the case. Listen again to some of the instructions regarding the Lord's Supper. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In the church at Corinth, many of them were weak and ill and some had died. That's not hyperbole, right? Persistence in unrepentant sin will bring God's discipline and that very well might be in physical sickness or even death. But there's a way out. James chapter, four verses, or chapter 5, verses 14 to 16 says this. This is very specific. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I want to be very clear. Your physical illness might not be the result of your sin. But, but these days, we are way too quick to dismiss that, to search our own hearts and see what we need to repent of, and to ask for help even, and ask for the prayer of the elders, as James tells us. Yet, clearly for Israel, repentance is key to deliverance from all of this. But if the people do not repent, then they face blindness or other physical ailments and the Lord will, will harden their land. This is the second stage. Hardened land. Verse 18 uh, to 20. So verse 18. 
And if, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the uh, trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. With each new stage... This is stage two. With each new stage, the Lord says that he will increase the discipline sevenfold for your sins. He uses that phrase. This idea of of seven is used uh, metaphorically throughout the Bible as a way to communicate completeness or wholeness. Even in the New Testament, Jesus tells us to, to forgive the one who has sinned against us not merely seven times, but 70 times seven ultimate, complete, and whole. But here, when they hear that phrase, sevenfold, they're going to think of the Sabbath. He has just been instructing them regarding the Sabbath. They're going to think of Sabbath rest on the seventh day, on the seventh year, or even after the passage of of seven sevens for the year of Jubilee, that super Sabbath that we looked at a few weeks ago. When they hear sevenfold, they're hearing a, a removal of that rest. If they disobey, the Lord is promising them anything but rest as all of their Sabbath holidays will be taken away from them. And the Lord will begin this stage of punishment by breaking their foolish pride, he says. Pride is a deadly sin that makes people think that they have no need for God. No need for God's ways. No need to live repentant. That's for the weak. You hear people say that Christianity is a crutch. They say that in their pride. I don't need that. See, even God's good blessings, consider them in the promised land. Even His good blessings can lead people to forget that all of these things are from the Lord's hand. They're not from their own strength. They did not conquer the promised land in their own strength. So we stop being thankful and we instead start to feel entitled. In this case, the Lord will harden their land, brings drought and famine. The Lord is reminding them that they are completely dependent upon Him. In other words, obedience obedience brings the blessings of verses 4 and 5. Look at that again. Up in verse 4. Well, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing uh, shall... Last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. But, uh, but if they disobey, then he's going to make the land and the sky like bronze and iron. And disobedience here, it doesn't simply mean, well, we'll see. Maybe it'll rain, maybe not. Let's see what Mother Nature does. Disobedience means here that the rain clouds will be like iron and the earth, the soil, will be as fertile as bronze. It means curses from the Lord. 
And if their persistence in sin continues, then the cursing again increases another sevenfold with the third stage, which brings wild beasts. Verses 21 and 22. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. So, so let me ask you this. It says here, if you continue to walk in contrary to me, how are the people of God supposed to walk? How are they supposed to live their lives? Micah 6.8 gives us an answer to that question. He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? Yet this kind of contrary walking described here, it's in direct opposition to God's intention for His people. It's walking in the opposite of justice and kindness and humility. This is a hard-hearted stubbornness. This is an obstinance, a refusal to repent in order to see reconciliation. And as a result, the Lord will actually let loose wild animals that will attack and kill their livestock and even some of their children. And this seems so harsh. We don't like to read passages like this and think to ourselves, God is love. And yet God is, he's simply warning them here. He's saying, don't do this to yourselves. Stay far away from this. Obey my commands. And he's going to continue to warn them throughout the passages of Scripture that the wages of sin is death. He's continued to warn his people over and over and over again away from sin. Later, this very generation, these same people will hear him say these words from Numbers chapter 14. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness because of their sin, because of their own faithlessness. This, this promise of cursing for disobedience was given as a call for the people to remain in faithfulness. See, sin brings consequences, not just to the offender, even here, sometimes even to their entire family. Your children are going to suffer because of your sin, God says. We know that this is true and that it still happens. Some of you have been saved from family lines where children suffered because of the sins of their parents. And yet, those two most important words, I think, in Scripture, but God, right? But God has stepped in and saved you. Don't fall back into the trap of your parents' sins, your ancestors' sins. Don't walk in their ways, but walk in His, humbly following the Lord. And if the Israelites here continue in their hostility toward their Redeemer, 
And he's going to increase his hostility toward them by bringing them, stage four now, war. Verse 23. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you, and shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of, your, of the enemy." When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. This is the Lord meting out vengeance. This is the Lord bringing, bringing justice toward those who have violated his covenant. The sword, the war or violence here would cause the Israelites to retreat into their, into their walled cities to escape seeking some kind of shelter. And yet even here, God says, they will not be safe. The Lord will send pestilence. He will send a plague. They will be defenseless and delivered over into the hands of their enemies. Many generations later, when the Israelites were, were being pushed or punished in this very way, the prophet Jeremiah, he will recount this in Jeremiah 32, as all of these four stages so far have taken place. And the people of Israel have refused to repent over and over as God has done these things to them to bring them back to himself, to bring them back into repentance. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 32, 24, Behold, the siege mounts have come up to the city to take it. And because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Clearly, this discipline, it brings famine. Bread will be scarce. Imagine being at war, sheltering in a, in a big house that you think is safe with 10 other families, being hunkered down in a bunker somewhere. Imagine sharing bread amongst 10 families trying to find, scrape together enough food for everybody to eat. That's the idea here. There's never enough. Everybody's going to be hungry all the time. Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 gives even a little bit more emotion to this. The prophet Ezekiel says, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety. They shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Because they've refused to repent. They're getting water by measure. That means just a little bit. Giving out just a little bit to each person in the family or in maybe 10 families gathered together. There's never enough anxiety and dismay this increasingly severe discipline is designed to bring hardened sinners to repentance and restoration. And these things would take place after the Lord had warned and warned and warned the people. 
In fact, I've quoted today from both Ezekiel and from Jeremiah, but all of the Old Testament prophets were sent to warn the people to repent of their sin of breaking the covenant. All of them. Essentially the same message. Repent. And if they continually refused to repent after all of this, then that fifth and final stage was to be captivity. Captivity. Pick it up in verse 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies among the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. This, this final stage is actually kind of a, a crescendo, crescendo of curses over and over, warning the people that their rebellion will be utterly crushed under the weight of God's righteous justice. And yet the goal is still the same. The goal is that this discipline will bring repentance leading to restoration. And yet yet sometimes hard hearts, sometimes hard hearts need big hammers, right? We see this in the New Testament. For example, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says of this immoral churchman, Right? He says this, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Or consider the, the harshness of the words of Jesus to the apostle Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, when Peter was trying to get, to get Jesus to stop talking about the cross, Matthew 16 says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Imagine being a leader of the twelve and having the Savior, call you Satan and say, you are, you're a hindrance to me. Get out of here. Well, this last stage of captivity, it clearly picks up where the previous had left off, the war and the violence of the sword. God will crush them in war so badly that they will be reduced. Did you see this? They will be reduced to cannibalism. He will destroy their places of idolatry and scatter their dead bodies among the the fallen idols. He will ruin their cities. He will overthrow their synagogues. He will make the promised land flowing with milk and honey. He will make it appalling. He will scatter them among the nations. Do you see what he's doing? 
The Lord is threatening here to undo their redemption from, from Egyptian slavery and make it even worse than it, than it ever was. He, he, to send them back, not just to Egypt. And we find out later, for, for some at least, he will send them back to Ur of the Chaldeans. He will send them back to that place from which he had called Abraham. I'm going to undo all of the covenant promises that I have done all the way back to Abraham. I'm going to undo all of that to get you to repent so that I can restore you. Don't lose sight of this. It is their own wickedness that would cause these things. This is not just God being mean because somebody did something he didn't like. God is, they are wicked. And God is going to punish their wickedness. Leviticus chapter 26 is the warning. This is the the thing that God says generations in advance. This is a promise that he gives them. If you disobey, God will discipline them in return. It will not go well for you. This passage here, this takes away all of their excuses later. Look at verses 34 and 35. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Because of their wickedness, they would be removed from the promised land. And while they are suffering at the hands of their captors, the Lord will give the land the Sabbath rest that he promised. But the Sabbath was made, as Jesus said, Sabbath was made for man. So there's two things happening here. The first is this. God will take away their Sabbath rest and give it to the land. And then second, God's promise of Sabbath rest, even for the land, we looked at in the previous chapters, that promise is going to be fulfilled despite the Israelites' unfaithfulness. And then finally, for those whom he doesn't scatter, those who are still in that land, that land that is now desolate and appalling, verse 36. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts, into the land, uh, in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, so they shall flee as one flees from the sword. They shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another and if, as if to escape a sword, when, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers. They shall rot away like them. They will live in fear, in terror, in paranoia. The nation of Israel, the point of all of this, is that the nation of Israel will be brought to its knees for the purpose of repentance leading to restoration. I hope you're hearing that because this is such a hard passage for the purpose of repentance leading to restoration. But I want you to know that these are not God's last words to his people. Even even when all five stages um, have been dispersed or handed out, even in the midst of their captivity later, 
when they are in fact disobedient and, and all of this takes place, the prophets will start to tell of a new covenant that God will one day make with his people. So probably the most famous passage of that is from Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And this brings us straight to the promise of restoration here in verses 40 to 46. Look at verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity, and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between myself, uh, himself and the people of Israel throughout, through Moses on Mount Sinai. Do you see how that passage started there? Verse 40. But if. There's a whole list of five stages of awful punishment, increasingly awful punishment that the people of Israel would face if they disobeyed. And we know from our study of the Old Testament, they did in fact disobey. And God does in fact do all of those things, even up to sending them into captivity. But if, I have said many times, even today, I think the word but is one of the most important words in the Bible. This, this passage here helps my theory in that. See, the Lord always holds out a hope of restoration. He always holds out hope. If they confess their, their iniquity in humility, he says, then the Lord will restore them. When the heart is uncircumcised, as the language is, it says here, that means it has not been set apart to God. Instead, when the heart wallows in unbelief, but a circumcised heart, the opposite of that, is one that has been sanctified through faith. God is actually calling here for their hearts, not just their actions. He's calling for their hearts to be set apart in surrender to Him. 
And all of this is based not just on their actions. It's based on God's remembrance of His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so the promise is sure because God's promises are always yes and amen, right? God is faithful. We know this. We know that all of this is true because Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 10 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners... While these five stages should have been poured out on us because of our sin, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. That's why just a couple chapters after those words, the Apostle Paul can say that one verse that I keep saying to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, sent his son to pay those wages for us. Pray together. Father, these warnings are so hard. We don't, we don't even want to think about some of the things that you have said would happen. We don't want to admit that sometimes maybe we're sick because we're sinning in some way. We, we don't want to admit, Lord, that, that our sin affects our family, our children, our grandchildren. We, we can see it looking, looking back. We can see how others' sin affected us, but I, we don't want to believe that my sin is going to affect my kids. And yet, Father, we can see all of these things and see that that you have sent Jesus to pay for those sins. And so, Father, there's two things here. One is those who are not your people, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, still face the wrath of God. The other is that Christ is holding out, that you are holding out through Christ the hope of redemption both for a restoration of those who have believed and yet are trapped in sin and for those who have not yet believed and are trapped in death, that in Christ there is life. And so Lord, I pray that we would remember the gospel that Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the foremost Transform our hearts, Lord, to make us like Jesus Christ, that we might be holy as he is holy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.